Amen. If you've got elementary age kids or below, we'd love to be a part of what we have happening with our Vine Kids program. Ms. Rhonda's walking right out this door. If you have fifth or sixth or seventh grade kids, we'd love to be a part of what we have happening out in our foyer there. We've got ministry time available just for those age kids. We'd love for them to be a part of what we have going on in all of those categories. I failed to mention just a minute ago uh, when I was doing announcements that, hey, don't touch that. It's got all the answers in it. It's the right answer. It's missing all the maps. They fell out. But other than that, it's good. Um, so I failed to mention that Daniel and Jenny Kenworthy had their twins, uh, Lucy and Lottie. That gives them five girls. So they are winning. Um, they beat all of you. And so they had their twins on Saturday, and they are going to be needing all of our help. So pay attention to the city. We're going to be setting up a meal train for them. Um, and so if you can help out in any way, I'm sure they would love and appreciate it, but they will show up eventually, maybe next spring with all their family in tow. Um, but we're very excited for them, and more babies means more babies. So uh, we got a lot of them. So that's uh, exciting. So very excited. For those of you that are here for the very first time, again, I want to welcome you. My name is Treb Prater, lead pastor here. We are honored that you would give us your Sunday morning. Um, we are excited to be part of what God is doing here. We think this community is worth something, um, and we are a tattered mess of people that are gathered to just worship and learn and grow and commit together, and so we hopefully, you hopefully will find a, a place here. We're excited about that. Um, you have come in a great week. We are uh, in the middle of our sort of beginning time in the book of John. We decided to walk through this thing uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, moment by moment. We're not real sure how long it's going to take, but we're 26 weeks in, and we're actually into chapter 6, and we've been there for five weeks. It is perhaps the most important theological sort of section in John's gospel, and it's why we've had to spend so much time there, because Jesus' teaching is so central to who he is in this chapter that we've needed to explore it and take time with it. And we're going we're gonna to be wrapping it up this week, but it is a vitally important chapter because what Jesus is claiming and what John's entire gospel is about is that Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. His entire claim in chapter 6 is that I am equal with God, right? And that's what John's gospel, the narrative, is about. It's not about the, the historicity of Christ or telling the story. Instead, John wants you to know that Jesus is God. And his entire gospel is geared towards showing you the deity of Christ. And in chapter 5 and 6, we saw these incredible miracles where Jesus feeds 5,000. And then he walks on water and calms the wind and the waves, giving evidence to the claims that he was making that he not only has authority and power over everyday elements like bread and fish, but that he can calm the waves and he can stand on the water, that he is in fact God in the flesh. And it's central to his gospel because at this point in time, this theology is what's going to send Jesus to the cross, right? The claims that he and the Father are one. And so John spends an, an incredible amount of time on Jesus' words in chapter 5 and 6 and the claims that he's making. And for the past few weeks, we've really been exploring this section where Jesus claims that he is the bread of life, the bread of heaven, sent by God to not only provide, but to give eternal life that begins in this very moment. And he claims to be the bread of life, right? 
Over the past two weeks, we've really spent time unpacking that. I won't get into it. But just as a quick reminder, there's a lot of Old Testament really important ties here, right? When the Israelites left Egypt and they were wandering in the desert before they went into the promised land, uh, they faced all kinds of hardships. And one of those hardships was the scarcity of food over those 40 years. And God provided for the Israelites every single day in the form of manna. And manna was basically bread from heaven, literally bread that God gave every single day. And it showed up on the ground and the Israelites were to go and get it. And they had specific gathering instructions and they weren't allowed to save it, but they had to partake in it and then trust that God would show up again the next day, right? And it was a sign of God's provision and God's life. And there was a belief that when the Messiah came, uh, he would also begin again the rescinding of manna. The manna would be coming again from heaven. And Jesus makes this claim to all of these people there after these incredible miracles. He says, I am that bread, right? It's not manna that's given by God that's physical that you grab, but my very presence. My flesh and blood is God's provision and God's life. I am not only the Messiah, but I am the sending of God's manna. And the teaching was hard and it was difficult. And we're going to see today that some of Jesus' own disciples, they just can't accept it. They just can't accept what he's saying. And so they're going to turn away. But the teaching was challenging because Jesus is saying all that you've believed and known about God showing up in this sort of physical attribute of bread that you would pick up and eat, it's all in me that I am the bread of life, and that in order for you to have life, as he says in chapter, verse 51, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, right? And last week we talked about communion, and we talked about how Jesus ties those truths into what he gave us as the church. And we looked at Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth on communion. We talked about the mystery and majesty of what we celebrate when we proclaim uh, the table, when we gather at this table and we, we partake in the body and the blood of Christ and we celebrate this as a church and we kind of tied all those pieces together. Well, this morning we're going to jump back in the last part of 6 in the middle of that context. We're going to see how hard this teaching really is. And we're going to see people begin to walk away. And then we're going to find this incredible proclamation that Peter makes on behalf of the disciples that I think is this incredible anchor of hope in some of life's most difficult times and questions. So as we begin to pray, if you've got your Bible and you want to turn to John chapter 6, that's where we're going to be uh, this morning, verse 60 through 71. And we'll wrap it up. But as, we, as you turn there and as we get there, let's take a moment and let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, the truth is, is that we cannot understand Scripture apart from you. In fact, God, all, as we'll see today, all things spiritual, um, the only way we understand them is because of you. That anything and everything spiritual, Father, is initiated by you. And so, God, we pray that you would teach our hearts this morning. You are the revealer of truth. You are the anchor of our hope. You are our strength. You are our comforter. You are our deliverer, God. Even in times that we have questions, God, we anchor ourselves to you. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Whatever that means, however you need to say that, whatever you need to let go of or whisper, just ask the Lord to teach your heart over the next few moments. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this every single week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. This whole thing that unfolds on Sunday morning is not about you, but we want to be a people that are concerned with God moving in the lives of other people. We want to pray for them. So take a moment and pray for that person beside you. Maybe they're your wife or your, your friend or you're just an acquaintance or maybe you, you just don't even know them, don't even know their name. Just pray for them. Pray that God would move in them and draw them unto himself.
Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would instruct our hearts. God, that you would move in us, that you would restore us, that you would teach us, that you would convict us, that you would do all the things that only you can do. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So before we dive into 660, somewhere between the, in the last few verses, they've made their way from the shore of the lake to the temple in Capernaum. Now, this text, really, if you remember the story, Jesus had fed 5,000. He had sent the disciples ahead of him on the lake. He had walked out to them on the water, right? And they thought it was a ghost, and he calmed the waves, and then he stood on that boat. And he, we talked about how Matthew's account had Peter, where he called Peter out, and Peter walked on the water. Well, they make it to the other side of the lake, and there's a crowd that had gathered there because they were looking for Jesus to do more, more miraculous signs. They had gotten on boats, and they had kind of sailed on ahead of him, and they got there, and they waited for him. And when they, they got there, Jesus confronted them by saying, the only reason you're here is because you're not interested in the miracles I did. You just want the outcome. You don't really care that I did wondrous things. What you want is me to give you bread like I did back there. And they begin to have this conversation about bread that matters. And that's when Jesus says, look, I am the bread of life. What you're looking for, you're looking for the wrong thing. Well, somehow that conversation in the, these few verses goes from that lake shore kind of over the hill and in not too far away at all to the synagogue in Capernaum, where Jesus sort of always finds himself in these, these synagogues. But Capernaum was kind of their home base of sorts. It's, it's where they, they spent a lot of their time and went out. So they, they make this conversation or confrontation or dialogue, and they, they take it all the way to the synagogue. And so now Jesus is gathered with all of his disciples. And you remember the, word, the idea of disciples is not just 12 uh, there are a lot of people that were following Jesus that claimed to be disciples of this traveling rabbi. Um, and Jesus will make a distinction between the disciples and the 12 that he has chosen. So that's kind of where they are. They've moved back to the temple. And this is what we see in John 6, 16. We're going to read down through 71 and finish up the chapter today. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to him, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you too not want, do you too want to leave? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through one of the twelve was later to betray him. So Jesus had moved this conversation, this confrontation, if you will, to the synagogue. And they were there with probably the Pharisees and those that were in town, but they were also there with a bunch of people that had followed Jesus from the lakeside. People that had come to be a part of the miracle. People maybe that had followed him. Maybe there were multitudes or hundreds or whatever, but these people are calling themselves his disciples because they were following this traveling rabbi around the countryside, right? And they're gathered there, and John tells us, that this teaching was really hard. And the disciples begin, this big group of people, begin to grumble among themselves, right? This teaching is hard. Who can accept it, right? A better translation is really who can listen to it, 
right? And Jesus hears them grumbling, and he basically says, are you offended? Would it not be easier or better if, if you saw me ascend to where I came from, right? And then Jesus kind of confronts them and, and, and says these things because he knows who it was that would believe and who it was that wouldn't, right? And the teaching was so hard that a lot of those gathered there just got up and, at that time and maybe just left, or over the course of a few days, they just began to go. And Jesus turns to his 12, the 12 that he had chosen, right? The disciples, the ones that were closest knit to him, the ones that we know as the followers of Christ, those 12 disciples, and he looks at them and he says, do you want to go too, right? Are you going to leave also? And then Peter, who sort of becomes a spokesperson for the group and always is, pipes up, right? And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, for we know and believe that you are the Holy One of God, right? And then John reminds us that Judas was there and that he was going to be the one that betrayed Jesus. And with this, chapter 6 kind of comes to a close with this kind of deep theological revelation and ending with this really challenging piece of text. And there's a couple of things I want to pull out here. Actually, there's a couple of things I want to make note of. I just want you to see and hear. Uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time on them, but they're important. And then I really want to focus a little bit on this proclamation that Peter makes. But there's important, some important things here in the text that I think make a difference that we actually need to call them out. And the first is there in, in 660, right? Uh, when the disciples are grumbling and they're talking about this specific teaching, and they say, on hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is hard teaching, who can accept it or who can listen to it? What's really important there is that they don't say this is hard teaching who can understand it. Because, see, I believe the disciples understood it. Sure, it was confusing and complicated on some level, but they understood the essence of what Jesus was saying. But it was hard to accept or listen to because it turned their worldview upside down. Jesus is claiming, right, that in order to have life, real, true, abundant life here on earth and eternal life in heaven, you had to completely and wholly partake in him alone. That there was no other avenue at all to abundant life or eternal life except through partaking in the blood and the body of Christ. Now they weren't confused necessarily like we don't understand what you're saying. They were having a hard time accepting it because it was throwing their worldview upside down because no longer was this traveling rabbi just going around talking about the coming of kingdom of God, but he was talking about death to myself and partaking wholly and totally in him. And that is not something I can listen to or readily accept. And the truth is, it's as hard to accept today as it was 2,000 years ago. Because the central and core piece of the gospel of Jesus Christ is death to self, total surrender, and partaking in Jesus Christ. That is the core gospel truth. Death to me, total surrender to Jesus Christ. It is the single most challenging thing in our walk as followers of Christ is death to me, surrender to Christ. See, these group of people, these disciples, these people that had seen Jesus do the miracles, they weren't wrestling with what he was saying, totally partaking. They're wrestling with what it meant, right? And Jesus knows it because he looks at him and he asks him a rhetorical question. Does this offend you? It's not a real question, right? It's more of a statement because he quickly follows it up with something else. But he says, are you grumbling because what I said offended you? 
He doesn't say, are you grumbling because you don't understand? Let me simplify it for you. He doesn't do that at all. He says you're complaining because you're offended by what I say, because death to self is offensive. Because our worldview is built on what I can do and how I do it. In fact, our entire worldview is really built around me. It's how we see relationships, people, work, money, stuff, as everything revolves around me. And most of us would never say this out loud, but it's just true. We see the world as it relates to us. And Jesus says, are you offended that I ask you to die to yourself? And then he looks at him in that same statement and he says, what if, right? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? So Jesus asks another question that's not really a question. It's more of a rhetorical statement. Does this offend you? Well, what if you saw me ascend to where I came from, which is heaven? What if right now in your presence I was taken up to God? Would you be offended? Well, the answer, of course, is no. They would be astounded, right? They would be amazed. What Jesus is doing is he's making a distinction between the worldly and the spiritual. He's saying you're seeing these things through the worldly point of view, but what I'm giving you is life. He says my words are life, right? The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. You're looking at this thing from the wrong point of view, through the lens of yourself, through your worldly understanding. Death to self is offensive to you. And you know what? It's offensive to us because we're in a culture that says, this is about you. We're in a culture on our college campuses that tell us, if you're offended, say it. Because everything relates to how it bounces off your heart. But at the core of the gospel is, this is not about you. Death to self. Surrender to Christ. And Jesus says, you're offended because I broke your worldview. So what if you saw me, which they, which they will, which is what's so incredible. What if they, you saw me ascend to heaven, which they're going to see after the resurrection. They're going to be standing there, and Jesus is literally going to be taking up. It's the first part of Acts. If you remember way back to our study of Acts, Acts 1, he ascends right before their eyes to heaven. So what if you saw that? You'd be astounded. He goes, but guess what? My words are just as powerful as me ascending because they are life. And as long as you're focused on the worldly, on the fleshly, and on the sinful nature of your heart, you will miss everything that I'm saying. And that's what Jesus is saying to them, right? These are just quick things to take note of, right? Last thing I want you to take note of before we jump to that proclamation is, is sort of Jesus' last sort of statement to them in that little section where he says, look, I've told you these things. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So he's saying, listen, just because you're here, just because you're following me, does not mean that you have surrendered to me, right? Because anything and everything spiritual is initiated by the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. He actually says it in 644. Brandon talked about it a couple of weeks ago. I've talked about it for years, that anything and everything spiritual is initiated by God. John 644 says, no one comes to the Father unless, no one comes to me unless he who sent me draws them, right? The idea being is that salvation and faith, they are gifts from God. They are not things that we stumble across. Salvation is nothing that you will work for, find, or merit, or earn. Faith is not something that you will muster at the end of some mental journey where you read enough books, come to enough conclusions, and go, ah, yes, God is real. Faith is a gift. Salvation is a free gift. They are bestowed and initiated by the Father. And Jesus says, you can't follow me 
unless the Father draws you. Right? So he's saying, just because you've gathered in this place and you've seen me do miracles, just because you've come here does not mean that you believe. Because the Father will have to take initiative with your heart and draw you to me. Because a lot of these people were on journeys. They were on journeys seeking truth and miracles and magic. They followed Jesus around the countryside because of the cool tricks that he did. It's why Jesus jumped their case when they were on the side of the lake and said, look, you're here for all the wrong reasons. You want me to produce bread because you're hungry. And I'm here to give you something else and you've missed it. And we come to Jesus with the same thing. We want a magic show. We want God to fix our financial woes and make our marriage better without actually having to surrender anything to him. We want him to heal our broken heart without actually having to let go and come face to face with the sin that is rooted and tangled deep within it. We want Jesus to do magic tricks. Amen, brother. We want Jesus to do, he didn't like that last part. That last part, he was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Done. That's what we want, right? We want God to do those things. So Jesus says, look, it's the Father's work. You're not going to get here on your own. All right, that being said, Peter, at this moment, has this most incredible statement, and it has echoed through my heart, and I've loved looking at it all week. So at that teaching, John tells us that many of his disciples, they just got up, and they left. Now, I don't know how this happened, if it happened right at that moment, or if it unfolded over the next few days, but the text makes it feel like right then and there, some people just left. Like they were hearing this teaching about total surrender and world-changing views and, and partaking in the body and blood of Christ and being drawn here to see something spiritual and not something physical, but surrendering our life to Christ. And it was so hard to actually believe that they just left. And it makes it sound like some of them got up and they just went home. Maybe they sailed back across the lake. Maybe they did whatever. And Jesus, seeing this as people are beginning to just sort of leave, right? He turns to the twelve. And he looks right at them, in the, right at them. He turns to the 12 and he says, do you not want to leave too, do you? The real literal translation as I was looking all that up in the Greek this week was, do you too want to go away? He looks at the 12 and he says, kind of here's your out, right? I mean, do you want to go? And then Peter, who is just so fascinating, right? mouthpiece of the disciples, speaks on their behalf, uses the we, sort of speaks for them. He looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, for we know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. And probably the most profound, raw, sort of emotional truth response that Peter had, because we know what Peter does. He's not saying that Jesus' teaching isn't hard. He's not even saying it's hard to accept. He's just going, where would we go? And there's a couple of key phrases in there that I think are really, really important. The first is really that, that first statement, Lord, to whom shall we go? And it's so cool because it's like they had spent all this time following Jesus. They'd walked away from boats and careers, and they had seen Jesus do the most incredible things, Right? And they had heard some challenging teaching that was really hard to accept. It was as hard for them to accept as it was anybody else. They probably had more questions than answers. And Peter's response begins with the proclamation that Jesus was Lord. 
He doesn't say Jesus. He says Lord. When we proclaim, and I've talked about this so many times, when we proclaim Jesus is Lord, we are proclaiming something wholly powerful. We are proclaiming the Lordship of Christ. And the doctrine of the Lordship of Christ says this, God, you are Lord of my life, which means you are ruler and authority of everything that I know and everything that I have. You alone are my authority. You are Lord. When we profess Jesus is Lord, we are professing that he is Lord of the things that I want, know, have, desire, that he alone is my God. It's not a, just a catchphrase that we say as Christians. It's a deep doctrinal statement that says, you are Lord of my life. And so when Peter addresses Jesus, he says, Lord. In other words, this title, you get all of us, me, the disciples here, Lord, look, to whom should we go? Like Peter's not actually thinking geography. He's not going, well, we're going to just go back home to our boats. He's talking about people. He's going, Lord, if I don't follow you, who else are we going to follow? Who else has your words? Where, where, who? Lord, whom would we go to? Because Peter knew something spectacular, right? He knew it, something spectacular, and he says it right there. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So it says, Jesus, as hard as your teaching is, as much as all of us here have walked away from our boats, from our families, as much as we've been ridiculed, as much as we've been threatened with our life, as costly as following you, as costly as it is, we do it not because your teaching's easy, not because following you has been a, a bowl of laughs, but because you have eternal life. Your words are life. Look, I think every one of us at some point in time has wanted to throw in the towel. At some point in our Christian walk, we've said, I, I don't know that I can do this anymore. I don't know that I have the faith, the trust, the ability. I just don't know. I don't know if this is real. I don't know if I've launched my boat into a place I don't even know where I'm going. Like, God, I am I'm broken, and I'm sad, or I'm worried, or I'm wondering, and I just want to quit. Right? I think we've all been there. I certainly have been there. And I think that when all this is happening, that's what people are doing. This is too hard. Like, I just can't do it. And so they began to leave. And what Peter realized was that in the middle of that difficulty, in the middle of that challenge, in the middle of all that that meant, there was a truth that anchored them and him to something bigger. This is Jesus. Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's been a place to anchor yourself to, right? It's not, Jesus, you are always making my life better. It's not, Jesus, you always make my life easier. It's, Jesus, you're eternal. And I believe this world is not the end. I believe that there's something bigger that waits for us. And so, Lord, your words of eternal life in the midst of my chaotic storm, well, I'll take those. And even though there's a part of me that wants to walk away and go with these other guys as they just leave, there's something about you that makes me stay, and it's your words of life. Abundant, real, true life here, and eternal life in heaven. And Peter doesn't make that statement lightly. Listen to how he follows it up. Because, right, we believe and we know. Think about that statement for a minute. They had watched Jesus, right? Call each one of them. 
They had watched him speak words of life to Nicodemus. They have watched him heal the man at the pool. They had watched him as he he called out this broken Samaritan woman. They had watched him as he fed 5,000. They all had baskets of fish and bread left over. They had seen it and they believed it. Their faith wasn't blind. It wasn't just some hope in this arbitrary God because he seems to be the best thing going in this forsaken world. No, they had seen it and they believed it. And so even though it was hard and every part of them may have wanted to walk away, they believed that Jesus was the one. Believed it. And I was thinking about my own life this week and the times that I've just wanted to toss that towel in or the most difficult times that I've faced. And I think about what God has done in my life over the years and how his promises have never failed and how he has shown up time and time again. When I have drifted, he has pursued relentlessly and he has rescued and redeemed and my faith in him is not blind. It's not of my own doing. I know and believe because I have seen the power of God when he saved me. So Peter's not saying, oh, you've got great words. He's saying you have eternal life words because we know them and believe them. You are the Holy One of God. We anchor ourselves to anything in the middle of life's crisis and struggles and fears and difficult times, right? It's got to be to what we know and believe about God, to what we know and believe that in the middle of my sin and death, that the God of the universe relentlessly pursued me and saved me, and it wasn't on my own. I didn't make that choice. I didn't get there. God literally saved me, and he gave me the gift of faith. I didn't find him on my own, and I believe with all of my heart that he is true and real because I've seen it. And so his words of eternal life are not some blind faith that Christians have to take, but it's true, evidenced, real things because he is a rescuer and a redeemer. And Peter's proclamation is probably one of the most profound, raw, beautiful truths in all of Scripture, which is, yeah, Jesus, there's a part of me that wants to run. But you are my Lord. You are my Lord of my life. I've surrendered to you, and your words are living, and they are life, and I have seen them, and I believe them, and you are the one of God. And so even though my sinful, broken heart wants to just take off, I'm anchored to you. I'm anchored to you. And you know what? That statement would take the disciples, honestly, each one of them to their death. Look, I don't know where you are today. I don't know where your heart is today. But I can guess that there's been moments in your life where you just don't know. May this proclamation be an anchor of hope. Right? For you to be able to define in your soul what those words mean. Lord, my Lord, Where would I go? Where else am I going to turn? Some other religion, some other idea of God? No, your words are life. I've seen them. You have pursued me. You've loved me. And even as I sit in this chair this morning, you love me in spite of all of my sinfulness and all of my failures and all of my self-love. And I've seen it and I believe it because you are faithful. You are the Holy One of God. And it is the only anchor of hope that I have. And at the end of the day, if that's what we've got, it's everything. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your truth.
thank you that, Lord, sometimes simple proclamations are all we have. That there are times that we want to be done, times that we want to throw in the towel, times that we want to turn loose. There are times that we have questions and times where we don't know how any of these things are ever going to work out. There are times where we feel just mediocre. There are times that we feel passionless. There are times we feel like everything's fine, but we're just going through the motions. And Lord, there are certainly times where we've wanted just to get up and walk away. But Lord, Peter's proclamation echoes through the recesses of my soul. And I don't say that lightly. Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. For we know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, you are the anchor of our soul. You are our hope in times of distress. You are our comfort in times of sorrow. You are our joy in times of brokenness. You alone have words of eternal life. So hear our cries. We close our time in worship. Make those words be kind of pillars of truth in our soul and our heart. And let us cry out to you. For God, you are Savior and Redeemer. You are the Holy One of God. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.